Northwest Christian School Online provides online Christian education for any students ranging from kindergarten to 10th grade. The tuition is fully covered through the state of Arizona's ESA program and is affordable for families out of state. You can count on NCS Online for a rigorous, proven online program that establishes a robust biblical worldview for all students. For more information, go to ncsonline.org. That's ncsonline.org. Could original sin be for real? Following Jesus should cost us everything. Jesus had to be tortured, beaten, crucified for my sins. That's unfair. If it hasn't, you're following the wrong Jesus. Here we are, um, Tuesday, April 18th, and uh, really are excited to have Matthew Vines from the Reformation Project back with us. Matthew, um, good to see you again or hear you again. It's great to be back. Yeah, pleased to pleased to have you. And, and Matthew, yesterday we had a little bit of a foible, a little bit of a fumble at the end of the interview, and so part of it was was cut out. I want to start today as we we ended yesterday, and that is I want to clarify uh, for our students, for our listeners, your position. And I'm gonna I'm gonna. This is always a dangerous thing, but I'm gonna articulate what I understand it it to be in a form, and then I'm gonna ask you for clarification. But your in in your advocacy you're not uniquely advocating for homosexuality what what you're advocating for is the inclusion of same sex monogamous covenantal relationships um within the church is that a fair way to represent the the mission of the reformation project yes and in fact one of our value our three core values as an organization are love for god love for the Bible and love for the church. But an additional value that flows out of those for us as an organization is monogamy and covenant. We are specifically advocating for monogamous covenantal same-sex relationships mm-hmm. to be included and blessed on the, with, in the same way that monogamous covenantal heterosexual relationships are. You know, I was taught from a young age growing up that sex is a good gift for marriage. And I've always believed that. I still believe that. Um, my main concern was, well, what about the people who are gay, who are exclusively attracted to the same sex? And I'm seeing examples of these people, you know, come with building really positive for them same-sex relationships and marriages and families. But it feels like, uh, it felt to me like a double standard in terms of the rule for uh, everybody else was wait until marriage. And then the rule for gay people was uh there's there's nothing your sexual orientation is kind of too broken to work and so it's just mm-hmm. kind of i felt like it was the message essentially was we'll go sit in the corner um yeah. while you watch your friends fall in love get married etc but i still believe that basic concept that and this is deeply rooted in you know those teachings of texts like ephesians 5 that uh, marriage is an icon a reflection of christ's covenantal love for the church that marriage is focused then on self-giving, sanctification, self-sacrificial love. It's not primarily about personal satisfaction. It's about mutual self-giving. And that is reflected too in this principle that we should say with our bodies what we're able and willing to say with the rest of our lives. We shouldn't say with our bodies, I give all of myself to you when you just met that person yesterday, (laughs) or you don't have that same level of commitment in the rest of your life. And so that's something that's a principle that has been at the heart of Christian teachings on sexual ethics throughout the church's history. And I think there's tremendous beauty, wisdom, and truth in the church's traditional 
teachings around sexuality, I just want to graft uh, gay people into that teaching. So, and then I guess the traditional pushback that you would get to that would be, well, when when we're talking about a same-sex union, the traditional scriptural definition of marriage would exclude that. And so the, if marriage is, in fact, an ordination, an institute that's established by God, and it reflects his image into the world, and that image is revealed in Genesis is male and female, then, I mean, how would you answer that? Because I, what I find interesting about your work in terms of advocacy and maybe even the Reformation Project is it it predates the Obergefell Supreme Court decision. Um, you were advocating before this, before it was even uh, the legal law of the land. Is that is that right? Yes. Okay. And so, how would you if if I were to come back and say, hey, um, what we're talking about in in you know, when you referenced it earlier, you called it a covenantal relationship. Are we talking about the same thing when we talk about a covenantal relationship and marriage? Yes. I mean, the only way that that wouldn't be the same thing is if you're in some context, for instance, where the government doesn't recognize a marriage. And I mean, I guess I, I do think from a Christian standpoint, it is the main thing is about the covenantal commitment before God, before others. Now, in our context, that means marriage. I mean, that that there's not really any daylight there. But when I think about, um, you know, before, for instance, since I support same-sex marriage, but before same-sex marriage was legal, I still think that you could have had monogamous covenantal relationships that are living out those same principles. But if government recognition is not possible, then I don't think that that, that fact alone is going to change the what, what the situation is. But that's obviously, that's not the situation today. It is possible. So it's kind of beside the point. Okay. And then there's a couple of, and we'll reference this a little bit more in a minute, but there's a couple of prominent authors and thinkers in this area. One is Re Rebecca McLaughlin. She's written a book called The Secular Creed. The other is Christopher Ewan, uh, and he's written a book called Holy Sexuality. And, and they both experienced same-sex attraction. Rebecca's response has been that she has... Um, over the course of time, she would say, hey, I've grown. My desires have changed. And so now she's in a, a marital relationship with a with a male. And Christopher Ewan is is said, hey, uh, I have chosen, you know, my desires have not changed. And so therefore, I've desired uh, or decided to remain celibate for at least the, the current course of time. What's your reaction to that? I mean, what are your thoughts on are those, I like the way you said it earlier. I think you articulated that really well. Are those the only options that are available to a individual who wants to follow Christ and yet also experience the same sex attraction? Well, I think from a non-affirming theological perspective, and by non-affirming of same sex marriage, those would be the only two options. The only two okay. options would be either go for a heterosexual marriage um, which is kind of generally going to be like a mixed orientation marriage, maybe hope that your desires change more in that direction or pursue lifelong singleness and celibacy. Um, both of those, I think, have real challenges. One is just that I do think that women in general have a little bit more experience of fluidity in sexual attraction and desires. It's not completely malleable, but I've definitely, there are... I will hear some stories of women who used to, you know, identify just as gay, but then over time they're like, well, maybe actually bisexual fits more. Maybe I 
there is a little bit more there. Whereas I, I, that's not the most common narrative, but I've heard stories like that that I don't have reason to doubt. Whereas with men who are gay, I virtually never hear stories of fluidity of desire or attraction. I don't really know why that is, but that is, I'm certainly not the only person to recognize that this is just some difference if we're speaking in generalities between male and female sexuality is that there's something about male sexuality that it just seems more fixed. And so, especially with men who are exclusively attracted to the same sex, there have been way too many examples of men like this who married women and the relation, the marriage ended up falling apart in ways that harmed a lot of people. And so I would be very reluctant to um, that. That's why I think there should be a lot of reluctance to encourage that path um, if somebody is really exclusively attracted to the same sex, because that uh, there are I think the likelihood that that's going to end in a painful way is much higher than in a typical marriage. Um, and then with the lifelong celibacy path, um, that is certain i mean certainly celibacy is a good thing it is an honored spiritual vocation in scripture represented by jesus himself um you do not need to be married in order to somehow fully reflect the image of god or in order to somehow be a, a full person um but paul also talks in first corinthians 7 rec you know he was single and wishes that all could be like he is but he recognizes that not everybody has the gift and so this idea of celibacy as a spiritual gift that not everyone has is reflected through from early on in the mm -hmm. Christian tradition. In fact, in the early centuries of the church, many church fathers were pretty emphatic that very few people have this gift. <laughs> and that, uh, but they tended to actually see celibacy as better than marriage up until the Protestant Reformation. Um, and then it kind of got flipped around to the point where now in general, uh, I'd say in our context, most people tend to think of, even if they don't outright say it, they tend to think of marriage as better than celibacy in terms of the more desirable outcome or the outcome that we should be pushing people toward. Um, so I, I tend to think that they're more on a level playing field um, and that both marriage and celibacy are good and honored things. Uh, but the, the challenge that I have is that is to say that celibacy is no longer something, a spiritual vocation that can be discerned and pursued by people who discern that gift, but instead is something that is effectively required of a whole class of people, regardless of whether they do have that gift. And there are many people who, uh, whether it was they tried to do ex-gay or conversion therapy for many years, or they simply sought to um, shut off as many of their desires as possible, uh, and be single and celibate for many years. There have just been so many gay people like that where it it really fell apart in kind of dramatic fashion for them because they do not have that gift. And Paul talks in 1 Corinthians 7 that the remedy for those who do not have that gift is marriage and that it's better to burn or, or better to marry than to burn with passion. And so that marriage, obviously there are more romantic ways in the Bible too of thinking about marriage. That's the more pragmatic way, but it, there's truth to that. I mean, yeah. there's a lot of truth to that, that marriage can have a lot of value in harnessing and uh, moderating people's desires. And uh, certainly, I don't think gay people are in any less need of that than anyone else. And so I do think that there are some real pastoral and practical challenges that develop when that is not a possibility. So it's I, that's a great frame of reference. And I want to ask you a 
question about context. If we were to say, okay, in Scripture we find uh, a couple of chief advocates for celibacy. One would be Paul. Uh, the other would be Jesus. You reference that where celibacy, you might say they would both indicate, hey, this is the preferred path. But for those that don't follow this path, here's option B. And and I'm glad that there's an option B because had everybody in the first century who was a Christ follower followed option A, the church would have ended in a generation. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So let's let's yeah. let's recognize that there is definitively a place for plan B. 100 percent All right. But now we take a look and we extrapolate those same that same term of reference or point of reference to the idea of same-sex marriage would it would you be saying hey the the marital relationship between a man and a man or a woman and a woman should enjoy scripturally equal footing as the relationship between a man and a woman or are you saying that the relationship for between or the marital relationship between man and woman is the preferred path but this is the plan b do you delineate or are you saying they're both from a scriptural perspective they both enjoy equal footing it's a good question i think there are a couple elements to that one is there are differences between heterosexual and same-sex marriages the most obvious difference is just that heterosexual marriage is capable of biological reproduction and same-sex marriages are not um that's not an insignificant difference. Um, I think the other the other main issue is I would not say that same-sex marriage has equal biblical standing as same opposite sex marriage in the sense that it is somehow um, that is somehow explicitly stated in scripture. My argument is not that the Bible explicitly supports same-sex marriage because I don't think that it does explicitly support it. I also don't think it explicitly rejects it. Um, I think that it is not an issue that is specifically addressed in the Bible. And so we then have to go to look at, well, what are the core principles of the Bible's teachings about marriage and sexuality, recognizing that the framework for that in scripture is heterosexual. And so one of the big questions that you ask then is, well, um, so one of the first questions I would ask is, what are those core principles? I mentioned this earlier, but I think that Ephesians 5 and Matthew 19 both, uh, are helpful in demonstrating this concept of marriage as a picture of Christ and the church. And this concept of marriage being about self-giving covenant to reflect our self-giving covenant, keeping God's character. Um, that is something that I think same-sex couples can live out in a similar way to opposite sex couples. Now, the main point of difference is gonna be the question of procreation. And so I think the question that raises then is, well, when we look at scripture, is procreation considered essential or the capacity for procreation? Is that considered essential to what a marriage is? And in the Old Testament, procreation is more important than it is in the New Testament. You don't really see celibacy as an honored vocation in the Old Testament. Jeremiah was celibate, but it was as a warning sign on the people of God of what would befall them if they kept disobeying God, um, because God was really building his kingdom people in the Old Testament through primarily biological procreation. Um, and of course, you could have some people, right, who like be become believers apart from that, but by and large, that, and of course, that was necessary in order to produce the Messiah. And so, so much of the Old Testament is focused around biological procreation as that means by which God is building up his kingdom people. And yet, even in the Old Testament, when you have a marriage that is infertile, like Abraham and Sarah up until very late in the marriage, the marriage was still regarded as a valid marriage, even though no one thought they'd be able to have a child. 
Hannah and Elkanah are in a similar situation in 1 Samuel 1, their marriage is still regarded as valid. And so that indicates that even in the Old Testament where procreation was of great importance, procreation was still, there was something that was that went deeper than that in defining what a marriage was. So in Matthew 19, when Jesus is talking about marriage and divorce, he makes an exception in the case of adultery or infidelity, but he does not make in terms of what could be a legitimate grounds for divorce, but he does not make an exception in the case of infertility, which is notable given that in a lot of those ancient Mediterranean societies, that would have been considered by default an acceptable reason for divorce. If, you know, if my wife, because again, they, they would have always blamed the, the, the wife for even if the man was infertile, um, women tended to get blamed um, and therefore, okay, well, I, I'm just going to, she can't give me an heir, so I'm just going to move on. But Jesus doesn't say that. He doesn't see the uh, question of infertility as somehow invalidating of a marriage. And so for Jesus, I think he's saying that covenantal commitment violated by adultery is something deeper and more foundational to what makes a marriage than the capacity for biological procreation. So we can get into other texts too, but I don't think there are any texts in scripture that say that sex must be open to procreation in order to be moral. Um, and that that's, you know, Paul encourages married couples to have sex so that Satan will not tempt them. But there's not, even in the Song of Songs, it doesn't specifically talk about sex must be open to procreation in order to be moral. That's kind of like another layer of things. But so that's where I would say the main difference between same sex and opposite sex relationships that is that issue of procreation. But I don't think that procreation lies at the heart or at the essence of the Bible's teachings about what are those core principles that is the essence of marriage. Okay. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, that's good. I appreciate that. That's, yeah. I mean, that's a strong articulation. I, my mind goes to, so then from a, from a heterosexual marriage perspective, what is the act of procreation? It's that notion of a, of a blessing. Um, and my mind then goes down two bunny trails because I wonder, okay, well, uh, there's two possible, um, ways in which that blessing can go off, off track. One would be infertility. So does God then design certain relationships not to be blessed in that way? And, and then, you know, I would say, okay, well, a same-sex marriage would never enjoy the blessing of procreation. Um, your thoughts on that? I mean, I, I see it both ways. Um, is, and I guess maybe that's where, as an advocate for same-sex marriage, you would say, well, that's the beauty of adoption. I mean, I do think there's, I remember when I was imagining when I was a teenager, like, hmm, you know, why, why might God have created gay people? And I kind of thought, well, maybe it was to adopt the extra babies um, because there always are that. Now, I'm not saying that that's some, you know, obviously. Sure, right, thing. right. But I, I do think there is tremendous beauty to adoption. Um, and I think that thus far, the evidence that we have would suggest that same-sex couples can be very good parents um, to children. So, but yes, it's not going to be a blessing that's going to result through natural means um, in a same-sex relationship. But so can you tell me, I, I, maybe I missed kind of, so you're saying, I, I certainly acknowledge that. So then you're saying- Well, yeah, so, I'm, just, I'm just trying to think through, you, I just appreciate your, your capacity to articulate this as well as you are. And folks, as you're yeah. listening, again, you know, I want you to, to understand the context here. You're listening to, to G and I. We feel differently than Matthew yeah. does on this particular issue. There are a whole bunch of issues that Matthew, G, and Jeff are completely agreed upon. Yeah. 
you know, the things that some some would suggest suggest these are the things that even matter the most. Um, but this particular issue we feel differently on. I just appreciate the ability. And I think this is what our students are going to love about this episode is the ability to peel back the, the superficial questions and scriptures that we all apply on our mutual sides of this issue and really get into to a, a dialogue. And so that's where I was just wondering about, you know, if a same-sex marriage does not have the capacity for procreation, in your view, if God allows or created marriage for same-sex union, um, then why would it not? Um, and I don't know that you have an answer for that. I don't know that I have an answer for that, but I was just curious what your thinking was on that. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't claim to have the answer to that. I would, I suppose I would just say that that might be a function of the fact that procreation is not part of the essence of marriage. Procreation yeah, is what I hear you saying. It's right. important. Yeah. We certainly all benefit from it. I don't mean to put that down one bit, but if it's not part of the essence of marriage, then that would allow for the possibility of, and again, you know, uh, if, you know, some people early on in the gay marriage debates were saying, uh-oh, you know, uh, if everybody were gay, then we wouldn't procreate. And so I think there's a reason why everyone is not gay. And in fact, why it's a minority. Yeah. Of people. Um, if it were 90% yeah. of people, it might just start cause some issues from a population standpoint. But if it's a, if it's a pretty small percentage of people, then I, I think that there can be room for that kind of diversity in a way that actually adds some color um, to the world rather than trying to kind of upend like basic orders of things. I really love that point that you brought up, Jeff, too. I have a, one of my best friends and his wife have zero um, uh, desire to have children. And, but he has chosen to live his life um, investing in the next generation. One is a teacher. Um, two is the open to adoption. Um, the same, I guess, the same boat a uh, same-sex uh, couple would be in. Good point. So, you know, Matthew, I first came across the work of the Reformation Project in, in you uniquely when I, I'm going through the Colson Fellows Program. And I'm not sure if you're familiar with that or not, but it's a, it's a program rooted in biblical worldview training through the Colson Center for Christian Worldview. And one of the homework assignments we had was to watch a debate between yourself. And this is on YouTube. I'll link to it in the show notes. Uh, a debate between yourself and uh, Sean McDowell who is a, a brilliant apologist and uh, the son of Josh McDowell and a professor at, at Biola. And as I watched that, you know, on the, 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 the discussion was called, what does the Bible say about homosexuality? And I was struck by a couple of observations as I watched this video. The first one was that I personally would hold to a theology that was more akin to that of Sean McDowell. That's where I'm at. That's what I believe scripture teaches and, and advocates for. And, and you feel differently. But what I could not wrap my mind around was I perceived um, the debate to be a little bit uncivil. And, and Sean, if you're listening, I'm sorry. I just, I felt like there were a few times where I don't yeah. think debates can ever be civil if one side is not allowed to finish a sentence or to articulate the whole of their position. Um, but I, I think my point in that was that, wow, thank you for participating in these sorts of discussions yeah. because you, you held to grace under fire 
And I thought you did a really good job kind of sticking to your guns, even though I may disagree with your guns. I, I, I certainly appreciated and respect the fact that you did. Why do you do that? What is it that motivates you uh, basically to, to stand in in a situation like that with Sean McDowell um, and, and participate in those sorts of discussions when you've got to realize that, hey, every once in a while, they're going to get sideways like this? Yeah, I mean, and I think Sean is a good guy, and I like him. As um, do I. And I would, you know, have another conversation with him if he wanted. Um, the I, I do think, as I mentioned to you earlier, I, I think that we maybe had a slightly different understanding of what the rules were for it. And so I think I was expecting a little bit more that we'd each have a little bit more time to complete sentences, that sort of thing. I think he was interested maybe in a little bit more active sparring, not in a rude way, right? But, um, and so I think that things maybe got a little bit like, I was like, oh, I didn't, I, you know, I think we just had a slightly different understanding of the, the rules for it, but that happens sometimes. Um, I, overall though, I, I like to dialogue with people who disagree with me as long as they're actually willing to have a conversation and are not just wanting to, nobody wants me to come yell at them. And I don't really want people to come yell at me either, right? <laughs> um, <laughs> but if people, fair. Want, yeah. if people want to actually have a conversation where we can try to sometimes, even if nobody changes their mind on something, but if we have better, if we have more clarity on where the disagreements are, right? Or we realize, okay, well, we agree on these points. It's just these points where we disagree. I think that is clarifying, edifying. I think it is helpful too as just a model because in our culture, especially with so much of life taking place online and on social media, very few social media platforms are conducive to respectful dialogue across significant disagreement. Mm -hmm. That's not the way that, and if you do it, the algorithms won't promote it. It's just not the yeah. way that things are set up. And I really do think in the church in particular, you know, as Isaiah 117 says, you know, come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. And I think that it is a valuable thing for the church to model that both for ourselves, for broader society. And I also just think it's important because on this topic in particular, I think that there's a lot of good faith disagreement, right? People have strongly held opinions, but people are not, most people are not malicious. Most people have sincerely held opinions. And if we're only calling each other names or getting really heated and angry all the time, then it's easy to lose sight of that and start to think, wow, everybody who disagrees with me is a bad person. And I just think that's such a dangerous and untrue impulse that we have to resist. Amen. Yeah. Amen. I wholeheartedly agree with that. Yeah. I, you know, as we close out this episode, I, I, and I say close out this episode, there's, there's two more questions I want to ask. And, and Matthew, I can't tell you how grateful we are for your right. time. And I also need to let our audience know that we are imposing upon Matthew the spiritual discipline of fasting because we <laughs> dropped into his it's, life during the noontime. It's chow time and in Texas. I understand he got half a salad before he, he came on to the podcast. Uh, but man, Matthew, I owe you a lunch. And so if you're ever in the Phoenix area and and you want a, a lunch, you've got a free lunch coming from your friends at Northwest Christian. Yep. Swing well, on by. Very green, Jeff. Yeah, but all that being said, there's two things I, I want to end with. One is, um, you know, we're talking about the reception that you've enjoyed within the evangelical, evangelical community. There's a there's a, a great book on this subject called Holy Sexuality by 
by Christopher Ewan. And I would point listeners to that book as a way of a learning how to articulate the conversation. But I think he holds you, at least in my position, some good theology um, that is, is really healthy. But one of the things he does in that book, Matthew, is he calls you out specifically and he calls you out with some hyperbole. And, and I just think, wow, what's that like to wake up on a Friday morning and to realize there's, here's a best-selling book in evangelical, you know, Christianity that has your name in it and calls you, calls you out specifically. What thoughts on that? I mean, that's, that is just how things go sometimes. Anytime that you put yourself forward in controversial, contentious conversations, sometimes the responses are not always going to be as uh, respectful as you might hope that they are. Um, but that's, you know, that's, I feel like I, I did sign up to do this. So I, I can't get yeah, too upset true, huh? about anybody who is upset with me or feels like I'm wrong. I, I just do think that there is a lot of, there's an impulse sometimes among people who are concerned about teaching that they disagree with, that anybody who is teaching something that I think is wrong is therefore a wolf. And I think that it's helpful. There are wolves, but I also think that most people who are wrong are not wolves. They're just wrong. <laughs> and um, to me, I think of a wolf as somebody who is out to devour, right? Out to devour the sheep. Um, and I think sometimes the tendency to say anybody who I think is wrong, I'm therefore going to call or label them a wolf is not the most helpful for building up the body of Christ because everybody does disagree on something <laughs> and we've right. got to find a way to, even on big issues, even when the disagreements are significant, how can we express these beliefs without seeming to attack the person? Um, so I'm, I'm a, a fan of that. Love it. And I, I love what you're saying too about, you know, is, is we have these discussions with people with whom we disagree to be fair, we have to recognize, okay, I'm suggesting you're wrong, but I, in order to be a responsible participant in this conversation, I have to come into it from the perspective that says, well, what if I'm wrong? Have yeah. I created space in this conversation for the Holy Spirit to do what God's word tells us the Holy Spirit will do? That's yeah. to convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. It's not my job to judge or to convict sin. It's my job to love. And then within that, give the room to the Holy Spirit. And then I love the other thing that, that you do, and you've almost done it more naturally, I think, than, than we've done today. And that's your ability to reference God's word. You've, you keep bringing us back today to God's word. Yeah. And that's where we need to point our students today yeah. is that if you're, if you're listening to this conversation, uh, don't go to social media, don't go to YouTube start with God's word and really spend time there prayerfully inviting the Holy Spirit to do what the Holy Spirit's going to do. He's going to illuminate truth. He's going to lead you in the words of Jesus yeah. into other truths. And, and I think that's, that's crucial, but I do want to end with a passage of scripture. And I, I want to, you know, the, the reality is we're on two different sides of this issue, but we both have scriptures. We all have scriptures that we're going to hold to, to defend our respective positions and our students get that right. They've heard the scriptures on this side. They've heard the scriptures on this side, but now let's press the, the, I wish we had a ton more time yeah. to go through a whole bunch more. Yeah, we but we come back. I'm happy yeah. to just let me know. 
Well, we'll thank you. I, that's yeah. very gracious. I, I yeah. would enjoy that. But let's take a look at the the issue of Sodom and Gomorrah. Okay. And, you know, traditionally the, the issue of Sodom and Gomorrah is perceived as, okay, here's a community that was given to debauchery, sexual immorality. And as part of that sexual immorality, we have this notion of homosexuality. Okay. And so as we, we get into that, I, you know, I think you would point to the fact, well, the issue really wasn't homosexuality. It was a lack of hospitality, a lack of committedness sexual immorality and the fact that these folks were not committed to God's design for covenantal marital relationships. And I think you would, I've heard you point to Ezekiel 16, 49, which reads, now this was the sin of your sister, Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, unconcerned. They did not help the poor and the needy. And so, you know, there, that's a powerful passage because it does not hold up sexual immorality in any form as part of the reason for the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah. But then you do have a passage like Jude 1, 6, and 7, which says, And the angels who did not keep their positions of authority, but abandoned their proper dwelling, these he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on that great day. In a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves to sexual immorality and perversion. They serve as an example of those who suffer with the punishment of eternal fire. And that perversion, I've heard it argued, is sometimes inclusive of homosexuality. Uh, others, maybe yourself, would, would say, no, I don't hold to the fact that 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 perversion in any form is homosexuality. And so that I've, I've kind of, I've done my best in a, in a few sentences to frame the two sides of this debate, this discussion. When you go to Sodom and Gomorrah and you look at Ezekiel 16, 49, and you look at Jude 1, 6, and 7, where do you go? How do you, how would you point us from your perspective? No, it's a great question. I think in order to think about what Jude is saying about Sodom and Gomorrah, it is important to also just think about what Genesis 19 says about Sodom and Gomorrah. And the basic narrative here is that God sends two angels who are disguised as men into the town of Sodom. Only Lot, who is Abraham's nephew and who wasn't actually from Sodom, he's the only person who shows them any hospitality. So he lets them into their home. I think the fact that Lot is the only one who does that is a illustration of the fact that these aren't great people just in general. In the city of Sodom. Lot is hospitable to them, but then the men of the city come to Lot's door, says, bring out the men who came to you tonight so that we can have sex with them. Lot refuses, the angels blind the men. Anyway, God then destroys Sodom and Gomorrah with fire and brimstone. But I don't think, then I, I think actually quite a few people even who are not affirming of same-sex marriage do agree on this point. These men are not saying that, oh, we're really interested in going on dates with these guys and and having some lustful encounter with them, what they're really doing is threatening gang rape of these men. There's a parallel story in Judges 19, where there's a Levite and his concubine who are going, they're resting in the city of Gibeah on their travelers, on their travels. Once again, it's a foreigner in the town who lets them into his home. And then it says that some of the wicked city men of the city surrounded the house, this is Judges 19.22, and said, bring out the man who came to your house so we can have sex with him. 
Um, the owner says, no, but uh, look, here's my virgin daughter and his concubine, and you can do with them what you will. This is a really horrible story, but it ends with mm -hmm. this sex horrible sexual violence against this woman, ends in her death. Uh, and it's such a similar thing. The, what they're saying they want in both cases, in Sodom and Gomorrah and in Judges 19, is the same. When they're actually allowed to complete their threat, it ends in rape and death in Judges 19. It's not about sexual desire in the sense of this is this, they were all gay or something, that sort of thing. So I really think that what's going on in Sodom and Gomorrah is similar. It's threatened gang rape um, by the men of Sodom, which even though it would have at least ostensibly been same sex, I mean, technically they were angels, but they were angels disguised as men. So it certainly would have the appearance of a same sex encounter. That is very different from well, any same-sex relationship that is consensual to start with, but much less uh, same-sex relationship that is monogamous, faithful, loving, committed. And so I think already just the sort of same-sex behavior that is in view in Genesis 19 is fundamentally different than what we're talking about today. But when you look at, uh, and it's interesting though, that in the 20 plus references to Sodom and Gomorrah after Genesis 19, the Bible, same-sex behavior is never specifically identified as the sin of Sodom. Frankly, I think even if it had been at some point, the only form of same-sex behavior in that text is threatened gang rape. And so there's still a, a gap between what we're talking about today. But in Jude uh, 7, and, and it's funny, I actually, I'll hear some people, with, since Jude only has one chapter, some people will say Jude 1, 7. Some people just say Jude 7. Sounds like you're partial to Jude 1, 7. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but yes. Consistency. So in that, in that, you do have where it says that Sodom and Gomorrah um, depends on your translation, but it says that they, in the same way, referring to Jude 6, um, they gave themselves up to the like perversion or unnatural desire, sometimes how it's called strange flesh. Um, so the Greek here is sarkos heteros, which sarkos for flesh, heteros, which is uh, the prefix for like hetero. <laughs> and it literally means flesh that is different, flesh that is other. So Richard Hayes, who's a prominent, he's not affirming, and he's a prominent New Testament scholar, he wrote about this text and he said, the phrase went after other flesh refers to their pursuit of non-human, angelic flesh. The expression sarkos heteros means flesh of another kind. Thus, it is impossible to construe this passage as a condemnation of homosexual desire, which entails precisely the pursuit of flesh of the same kind. And I think that that interpretation that even non-affirming scholars like Hayes hold is supported by what's in Jude 6. So Jude 6 is a reference to the Nephilim of Genesis 6, which is a somewhat cryptic text in Genesis that Christians have always debated exactly what's going on. But essentially it says that you have the sons of God coming to earth and mating with the daughters of men in Genesis 6. This is not seen as a positive thing. And so you have this violation of the angelic human uh, boundaries in Genesis 6 that then Jude 7 is saying in the same way as that, you have what is the sarkos heteros that is being condemned in Sodom and Gomorrah, which is what led Hayes to say, this is really focusing on the human angel boundary being violated. And the fact that the word heteros is there does seem to indicate a focus less on, well, they were pursuing flesh that was too similar to their own. Really, that wasn't seem to be the, the primary thing in focus, but regardless of people's thoughts on that, the form, the only form of same-sex behavior that's described in Genesis 19 is threatened gang rape. And I think that that is significant to keep in mind in just asking how similar is that to the sorts of relationships we're talking about today.
That's wow. fantastic. Yeah, it's fan- Matthew. I I just you've been a gift to us and uh, yeah, thank coming you. on here and um, having a conversation. Really appreciate you, and uh, I'm thankful for our listeners too. I'm hoping yeah. you uh, um, had some good questions and good. I send them in to us, please. Um, we'd well, love and Matthew, I'd love to. I'd love to have Matthew. you back yeah. at some point, and maybe we could have students, you know, some specific questions sent in. Yeah. I think that would be a, a oh, great I'd option. I'd be happy to. So just let me know. Yeah. All right. Well, well, thank you very we'll, much. We'll do that. And here we are. Uh, I just got a plug in there. Uh, on April 20th, we got 45 students heading down to uh, Kids Kingdom. So Amen. Um, right keep in court. prayer for those uh, in a couple of days. And again, thank you, Matthew. Thank you, listeners. Uh, Mr. Brown, um, have a great day. Thank you guys so much. Thank you. Take care. Northwest Christian School has made Biblical Worldview online courses available to all high school students for transcript credit. Regardless of whether they attend public school, private school, charter school, or homeschool, Frameworks is an exciting new initiative utilizing the learning management system of Grand Canyon University. For more information, visit BibleClassesForPublicSchools.com.